Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello, and welcome to the show. Today, we've got as our guest, Quentin D'Souza. He's got an amazing story. I think you're going to like it a lot. He was a teacher and he got into real estate investing, did single family, moved to multifamily. And the punchline is that they're closing in on a hundred million dollar portfolio uh, total here this year. So big transition there. Obviously, a lot of work went into that, and that's a, a compressed version of his story, but he shares a lot of uh a lot of timeless wisdom, I think that in, in what you see as a common thread in a lot of folks that have gone through that journey. And I think uh, he's very transparent about it and what uh, helped him to achieve that. So it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting journey that we take you through there. And I really enjoyed Quentin joining and sharing that before we dive into the episode, if you are wanting to see our projects from DJE, our investment projects that come out and you're not currently seeing those, you can get on the list and get access to the investor portal by going to djetexas.com. You can set up a call with our team. We can share case studies, get you in the system. And if you are looking to accelerate your business and become an operator of real estate and run these type of projects, we created apartmenteducators.com for you. It's a network, tools, ecosystem, the whole thing you need to make this business happen and plug you in and push the fast forward button. There's a free video course we have for you at apartmenteducators.com that I teach. So check that out. All right, let's jump into the episode here with Quentin. Quentin, hello and welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Hey, good, Devin. How about yourself? Oh, doing great. Doing great. Thank you for jumping on here. And I'm excited to dive in and learn about your journey. Um, to kick it off, let's uh, let's hear about some of your background and, and how you grew up and how you got into real estate. I always like to understand what the pivot point is for somebody if, if they haven't been doing this uh, forever, what the, what the transition point was or what initially piqued your curiosity in getting into real estate investing? Well, I know I, I, you could, I could go way back. You know, we, we were uh, new immigrants to, to, uh, Canada. We, um, we didn't have, uh, you know, much of anything when we got started. I remember living in a basement of somebody's house for, I don't know how many years before we finally got into an apartment. And, um, you know, how I old was, were you when you immigrated? Uh, I was three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, so I didn't know any better. Sure. Uh, we, I, I used to have uh, like when I was in grade two, so I, I had like three paper routes. I would, you know, I was always doing things like that. Right. I um, had different types of jobs. I worked as like a, you know, just a bunch of different things. And then as I got older, I, I took a, you know, my parents were always pushing me to get degrees and things like that. So I got my, my master's in education. I became a teacher. I was going towards being a principal. I got my principal papers and um, I was doing a lot of different things on the side. So I would do different contracts. I, I, I did some consulting for some book companies and uh, I also started to invest uh, on the side. So I experimented with different things. I, um, you know, made some websites. And what I found was that we bought a house and that house was doing better than all of these other side projects. Right. Right. And, um, and so I decided to continue to do that. That was in 2004. And um, by 2008, 
I was buying um, four or five houses uh, uh, a year. Um, different. Well, I was using the uh, Burr strategy, but you know that wasn't. We called it the buy, fix, refinance, and rent. There was no title or acronym for it at that time. Right. Been yeah. The, doing the model's decades. been around for a while, and yeah. Bigger Pockets has successfully branded it as Burr, right? Yeah, and so um, we've been. I've been. I was doing that with my properties refinancing. They started to take on partners in 2009 because they were seeing what I was doing, and um, I got to the point in 2014 where I didn't have to work anymore. I, um, I could just do. I, I had gained my financial freedom from my my job through the real estate portfolio, and, and then I. How did you define that financial freedom? Was it uh, passive income equals bills every month, or or did you have some other metric? I did. I my passive income was about five thousand dollars a month, which was exceeding what my income was from my teaching uh, job. Excellent. And, and so I, at that time, I could I decided, and I, I actually banked the money for a year. I could have left in 2013, but I banked my paycheck and I just used my income from my real estate portfolio for a whole year before Beautiful. I, before I did that. And I, you know, that it was a proof of concept too, for my wife, because our kids were really small, like they were, yeah. you know, two and, and, and five. Right. And so after I had done that, and then I left, uh, I started to do flips. I did um, assignments. I did, uh, uh, rent to owns or lease to owns. And then I, I figured out that I was doing a lot more work doing this stuff than I was when I was working. So <laughs> I, I stopped all that in 2015, I started to focus more and more on apartment buildings and, you know, scaling and growing that. Uh, now I'm at about 80 million in assets. Uh, we have um, 36 properties, uh, about 20 apartment buildings, and uh, continue to scale and grow. I should be at a, a hundred million in assets by the end of this quarter, and um, I really love that aspect of it. Right, the the wealth numbers have gone up substantially. Cash flow as well has gone up substantially from that point, and. Um, I just continue to enjoy it. Love talking to, uh, you know, my wife is tired of hearing me talk about real estate. So I have yep. to come on podcasts and talk to people like you, Devin. Who That's why I have a podcast. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear it at home. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, it, it's been fun. I, I've really enjoyed it and I continue to to scale and grow. And, you know, I've written some books uh, on, uh, they're on Amazon. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can help each other, pull each other up. And, yes. you know, I'm, and I'm all about that for sure. I love it. Yeah. The business model is such that a teacher can go to a hundred million dollars in, in assets in a, by any measure, very short amount of time. And that is very powerful. Obviously it, it doesn't just happen automatically, but the, the machinery's there, the business model's there. Now, let me ask you, are these all, all your assets in Canada? No. So I have, uh, I have some, I've got a few properties in Tampa. So I've got uh, uh, some like uh, single families and duplexes that I rent out there. I've got a portfolio and I've got a good sense of how to invest in the U.S. and how do they invest in Canada? I've right. also uh, been um, um, a limited partner in projects and a key partner in projects in the U.S. So I've got uh, a sense of all of that. But my uh, the real estate portfolio—that's a couple million in assets down there, 
plus whatever percentage ownerships I have. Sure. Um, but my the 80 uh, growing to 100 million is on Ontario. So it's a, a tougher market. Um, right. It's very comparable to a California market uh, right. be, because um, uh, of rent control uh, and the appreciation that we're seeing. You know, last year was a 25% appreciation. Uh, it was insane like wow. uh, um, and uh, unsustainable for sure. But sure. um but you know it's been it's been great for owning the assets <laughs> right uh, and i've always been you know uh, there there's a lot of different ways to look at that but when i started to see the amount of um the, the amount of currency that was getting injected into the the market and you know the yes. devaluation of what was happening uh, like i mean we, you can't add 40% to the money supply and think that everything's going to stay the same right so um you know i i saw that and when i say when i say 25% i mean you got to think we've we, like we've basically depreciated money by 40%. So right. 25% is not a not a stretch, right? It's not. So. And it's it's really I mean I've kind of struggled with this over the last 2 years. Part of it is just absolutely disgusting the debasement of the currency. Uh and and then you know the beneficiaries are asset owners. So we've got a lot of real estate holdings and have benefited on a dollar amount tremendously you know, what, what does that mean for the long-term implications of the economy? I don't, you know, it's not good, but you, you, it better to be in assets than holding dollars, right? Because the dollars are not appreciating. They're going the other direction quickly, but the assets are depreciating and the bank loans uh, are the same, right? Or maybe if we're amortizing, we're paying the bank loans down while the asset appreciation just runs away. So yeah, that's kind of one thing we've beat the drum on recently is in inflation. Like you just don't want to have too much money in sitting in dollars because it's just sand in an hourglass just getting eroded a lot faster than it has been in the past, which is unfortunate. But. Yeah. And I mean, we have negative real rates, right? We have yes. uh, like when, when I'm getting, uh, and this is really interesting because in the US and, and Canada, financing is very different. We have five major banks in Canada where wow. you have like 5,000 in the US, right? Yeah. Right. You have right. a number of major ones, but you have quite a few much, uh, quite a few uh, choices. And when we look at the, the multifamily, we have like CMHC financing, which gives us uh, higher amortizations. Okay. So we, we can get like 30, 35, 40 year AMs on oh, our wow. multifamily buildings That's and cool. our, our rates can be like sub 3%, which Beautiful. is, which is really uh, handy when it comes to being able to acquire those buildings. Right. You know, whereas when you look at some, like you could do, you have flexibility though in the U S cause you have more choice, but when you're looking at your, your agency debt, you know, you can do interest only. Uh, which is something that you don't usually see in uh, our uh, agency, which is CMHC, right? So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you, they have some different products and you also have more competition, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? We right. have CMHC and, you know, they have their own agenda that's coming from the, uh, I mean, they're supposed to be an independent agency, but they're a government, you know, crown corporation, right? So mm -hmm. you, you get what you get. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, but those negative real rates, that means that I can borrow more money than the value of the money is um, when I'm paying it back. Because, you know, um, the inflation rate, let's say, 
like posted inflation, let's say is 5%. And if I'm borrowing at two and a half percent, that spread is what I like. I'm, I'm getting paid to, to, to borrow money and it, right. it is crazy. And we haven't really seen that, you know, I mean, we've said it informally because, you know, the real inflation rate is perhaps a lot higher than what the, the CPI is, sure. but you know, the consumer price index now is, posted as higher than what uh, interest rates are. That is insane, right? So right. you're right. So if you own debt, you're an asset owner that has debt, your debt is depreciating at a faster rate than, than you know what you're borrowing it from. It's like a no-brainer to borrow. And in fact, I would say we've moved from a cash econ- economy to a, a debt economy, totally like a, a credit-based economy. And if we, you know, who, who wins? It's those people who own assets that are uh, income producing that people want to give debt on, right? Not uh, not necessarily assets that people don't want to, to put debt on. So, uh, for example, like you could have stocks and you have paper, right? And you can get debt against that paper. But the debt that you might get against stocks or like mutual funds or something like that is, say, like 50%. Right. Because maybe a bank, if anything, will give you 50 percent of whatever you have in your stocks, especially if you're having it managed by somebody else who's a professional. You might get that. But with a mortgage on a on a rental property that's income producing, you may put 20 percent down and then you get four times as much debt from from the institution. What does that tell you about the quality of the debt? Yes. Right? It's you've got a higher quality debt and so you're going to be able to get more money. So the higher quality debt you have in this type of economy is going to be amazing for those people who are asset owners and it's going to create a real divergence. I I'm a little scared to you know, what society is going to look like and you know when you have these huge divergences is when you have you know, people who riot, like this is when you have big, big extremes in um, any society, that's when things start to to get challenged, right? So I'm a little apprehensive of what that's going to look like. I too. Yeah. But, you know, it's advocating people, hey, listen, buy real assets. And it doesn't have to be like, great. It's like, uh, how, like real estate is great, but there are other assets. You can, you can buy it like a silver ounce that's 25 bucks. Right. And at least that's a real asset. Right. And you know, and it's different and it's something that you can do. So there are other types of ways that you can participate and it doesn't have to be hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, the, you know, just own something that's real and don't keep putting your dollars into, you know, the bank and holding on to those dollars because next year that dollar could be worth 90 cents. And then after that, it could be worth, whatever 85 cents and, you know and if you look back at the value of the dollar from you know 1920 to where we are now huge difference right sure. just huge difference so yeah, it's, it's sorry. Almost entirely debased yeah yeah I, i'm just went into a whole <laughs> whole different direction there but no i love, I, I love spent a lot of time looking at that type of stuff and thinking about it um i mean what are your thoughts on you know we we've got this discrepancy and this growing gap and I think you and I have been intentional and fortunate to get on the side of it that is better to be on um, by owning assets. 
you think UBI's coming, you know, to, to kind of quell some of this uh, civil unrest that could be around the corner or you, what were your thoughts on that? It's that, that's definitely not a multifamily question, but no. just curious to get your thoughts on it. I think, I think we've already had it. Yes. And I, and I think that because we've opened the door, it means that we're going to see it again and again. Yes. It's the same thing happened with quantitative easing back in 2008. Right. Um, why did we do it? Well, it was an experiment, but it's not an experiment that we did it last year. Right. Right. And and uh, and it's not an experiment that we did it the year before. So this is what happens now. What we've done is we've sent people checks. Right. Um, in and so that is a precedent to do it's it again. Heck of a test run. Yeah. yeah. Under the so, premise of a pandemic and all this stuff, but still ran the test. Right. So you have riots. What do you do? Send everybody a thousand dollar check. I don't right. know. Right. So like this is this is really going to be interesting to see what happens in the future. I say that we've already had it and that right. UBI is just, uh, you know, it, it just depends on when it's going to be used and when it's not going to be used. Um, we have to be careful. Right. Because like all of this is is like caused by some of the things that we are doing, but also it's because we've enabled the government to be able to do that too. Right. Absolutely. Um, so we have to, we have to balance that. There's always, there's always giving too much power to, you know, the government and we want to have, we want to make sure that we have that, you know, control as well. So there's, it's a fine balance for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt. Well, I appreciate your thoughts on that. And I, I, I am endlessly fascinated by, you know, current events, last couple of years, macroeconomics, uh, this, this unprecedented, um, introduction of liquidity globally. And we benefit in some ways, you know, with, with the assets we hold and the rates and things like that. Um, rent growth, you know, certainly a part of uh, the inflation of everything. And so there's, there's benefit there too, but there's, there's, uh, it's many, many variables in the, in the, in the equation here. And oh. it's our job to, to kind of uh, keep an eye on that stuff. You talked a little what, bit about. What, what, wait, one, sure. one question for you. Sure. What if we're, what if we're in inning two? Right. Or inning three of it. Right. Right. And this is just the beginning, not right. necessarily the, what we're hearing from a lot of people, like we're in inning eight or nine. Right. Right. That is going to be huge. Right. Because if they're going to continue to do that over and over again and use the same quantitative easing, right? You know, uh, you not you, you can call it whatever you want, you sure. know. And um, what if that's going to continue to happen, right? There's that's a, you're going to keep doing this and this and this, right? Sorry, what, what do you think? No, I agree. It's uh, you know, my thing because I think it's easy to kind of get depressed about this stuff. My thing is, I spend time thinking about it, but then I try to pivot. Uh, to, well, I didn't create this mess. How do we benefit from it, right? How do we continue to create quality housing for people? Um, and, and I think if we are in earlier innings and, you know, I don't see people talking about the Fed, you know, raising rates this year. I think they always have to say that, um, but uh, doing it is a, is, a, is a whole other thing. So I think, you know, if we're in a low interest rate environment for a long time where the bank's love to lend on real estate, which has been the case for a long time. Um, and, you know, housing is housing supply is, is, is short supplied. And depending on the markets that you're in, you're seeing population growth and, 
and things like that. I think it bodes well for, for, for the business. Um, and even to the, back to the UBI, you know, if you introduce more money for people to have, I think that there's an argument made that that puts upward pressure on rents, um, with, with UBI. So I think, um, you know, nobody's got the full crystal ball, but I think it bodes well for, you know, the next couple of years in real estate and multifamily, which is, which is good. Um, I want to learn a little bit more about Canada versus us. You know, haven't sure. done any investing in Canada. Yeah. You've got projects in both. I, yeah. I love learning about kind of the difference with the amount of lenders, some of the terms you're getting. That's yeah. great. Um, what are some of the other primary differences you've seen? You mentioned Ontario's this, this difficult market with, with uh, rent control and things like that, but it's still working for you. Um, what, what are some of the big differences us versus Canada from, from your perspective? Yeah, so I think that some of the things that is happening in the U.S. can kind of be reflected on what's already happened in Canada. So, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of time now. You you kind of avoided it with the 1031 exchange still being part of what 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 you're what you're able to do in the U.S. But sure. we've never had the 1031 exchange in Canada. Okay. So you when you sell an asset, you have capital gains that you have to pay on that asset. Right. I find that the the taxes. This tax, like we have the ability to depreciate, which helps to offset the income, but we can't defer the capital gains like you can do with cost segregation. Because you can, like if you exit a project and you enter a project at the same time, you can basically use cost segregation to, to nullify the, the gain, depending on the size of it, right? Sure. Sure. Can't do that in Canada. So like you are taxes paying taxes. do at exit, you just, no matter what. Yeah, and you yeah. can offset it by using some sort of registered plan if you have the room, but it's still not enough, right? So right. taxes are due. Like I, like I, I exited a bunch of properties uh, last year, and I like I got a two hundred something thousand dollar tax bill, right? So right. like it's 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 something that I've got to pay. Now it's a capital gains tax, which is the lowest taxes of all the, you know, dividend income, you know, all those type of taxes. So one of the benefits of investing in the U S is your, your tax code and the number of different ways that you're able to do that, particularly in real estate. I have, I've done very well in my U.S. portfolio, and I've never paid taxes, so it's right. been like super awesome. Yeah, because it helps. The, the other thing is that I have to worry about is double taxation, because if the entity isn't created correctly in the U.S., I get double taxed the same dollar uh, in the U.S. and Canada. Oh, wow. So, it yeah. would be brutal. Like it would never, it would never work for me. But right. if you set yourself up correctly, and that's why it's important to, to use cross-border CPAs that understand both systems very well, you sure. create an entity in the U.S. that avoids that double taxation. Once you get to yourself, uh, bringing income to yourself, it never gets to you. And so you're never bringing anything back. It's also a bit of the challenge, right? But one of the great things about what living in Canada is that a lot of my properties are in Florida, uh, Texas, um, Arizona, all the places that I like to visit when I'm uh, going down into the U.S., right? Sure. So it allows me to be able to use that as, a, as an opportunity to go visit those properties and stay for a while and, and do all the things that I want to do. So I'm spending those U.S. dollars that I'm earning in places that I, I want to go and I, and I want to visit. So that's been a pretty cool uh, offset of you know what, what I've been able to do. And I kind of take a, a bigger picture view, right? So the reason why I would invest 
in the US and not because I'm, I do very well with my returns in Ontario, um, is because I'm also looking to hedge against the Canadian economy with US dollars. Right. It's my, my version of diversity or diversifying because I don't want to di diversify. I want to diversify in assets that I understand really well. I understand multifamily really well. I understand buying houses really well. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm, I've got that hedge now because I'm earning US dollars instead of Canadian dollars. It gives me some sort of, you know, a new way to earn income in an asset class I understand well. And, you know, um, I get to hedge against the Canadian economy. So I'm thinking a little bit probably broader than the way a lot of people think when it comes to how I'm building what I'm building. But I think for me, that's, that's what works. You have to have a plan whenever you go somewhere else. If you're going to go, go to Canada to invest, you have to have a bigger reason why, right? It can't just be because I like, you know, the returns I'm getting in a particular place. It's not, it's, it shouldn't be the only reason. And, you know, there are a lot of difference, differences between investing in you in the US and in Canada, like financing. It's, I cannot finance a property worth anything in the US because I'm a foreign national, right? Uh -huh. It doesn't matter yeah. how much my net worth is. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't have, like, I have, I've been building my credit uh, through an ITIN number and, you know, my EIN number through my, my entity setup, but that takes years to do, right? Sure. sure. You know, so one of the ways that I can shortcut that is partner with somebody who is, uh, um, you know, a GP in a, in a project. It just shortcuts the process, right? Right, and and I, it enables me to take on leverage better. So when I get a loan, I might get like sixty percent LTV or something like that. When my partner gets a loan and I'm partner with them, I'm taking advantage of maybe let's say a seventy five percent LTV, right? And so for me, it it's more efficient as an investor. So I like to do that too. So, um, so that's why I, you know, I'm kind of doing a bunch of different things and I'm also kind of testing the water to see what's working well and what isn't right. Like my, I've got properties in Tampa. I was buying them at 80 to hundred K now they're 140 to 150 K, right. I've got a right. du duplex that I bought for like 240 K now it's worth 340 K. Right. So, but th those are like, you know, in the grand scheme of things that of the way that I'm thinking, those are small potatoes. Those are really small compared to some of the other stuff. Like I'm buying a 110 unit next in, in April, um, $15 million asset. Right. So like it becomes my playground too. So I get to experiment a little bit and, you know, earn a return, <laughs> right. you know, and get to, to, you know, get that uh, economic diversity um, and uh, hedge. And, and also when I, when I go on vacation, it gets all covered for me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you have to check on the assets, right? I mean, especially in uh, Florida sounds fun. Texas is great too. Texas is great too. And I can certainly relate to the, the different tracks of single family, multifamily. You know, I, I spent several years sing, doing a lot of single family projects. And this was when I was kind of working my way out of the corporate world. Um, and I would have, you know, killed for some of the appreciation that I've seen now on some of those that I held for a few years, you know, just tremendous percentage numbers of appreciation on single family. I'm in San Antonio, Texas and, you know, houses I bought in 2014 and, and still have just going like, Oh my gosh. But, you know, playing a different game now in multifamily that just, I mean, it's just 
completely different in terms of the the, the valuations and the, it's just a completely different game. How did you make that pivot from the single family world? What pushed you into the multifamily track? Uh, there's there's similarities, but it's a different game. How did you how did you make that transition and why? Well, I was looking at my return on equity when I was. I, lo- uh, I love that. I just want to stop on and say I love that metric. And I think if you're not looking at return on equity, you've got this whole new chapter in front of you uh, because you don't hear people outside of real estate, in my experience, really talk about that. So just want to underscore that. I, I love. I love that metric. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and especially when you're starting out or within the first few years of investing in real estate, you don't really think about it. But what happens is you get capped out when you are investing in single families because you're based on a debt coverage ratio. And and then also like usually your like your income that I think you call it a W2 income, right? Right. So job. so yeah, your job income. We have a T4 income, but like, you know, it's it's that income and your debt coverage ratio that it, it gives you the ability to be able to to, to, to get loans. Whereas in an apartment building, I'm based on what I can, you know, do when I reposition an apartment building, it's based on NOI and cap rate, right? And I can refinance a building again and again. Um, and it's, it's not dependent on uh, debt coverage ratio and, and it's not dependent on the, um, uh, on the actual, you know, T4 income. It's as long as my net worth is there and that and that I'm repositioning the asset how I need to reposition it, I can continue to do that. And I can be more efficient on that equity because what happens is like when you get into those properties in San Antonio, you get to a point where the bank's going to get like the mortgage can only be 300 and the, the property is worth 1.2. Well, right. they're not going to give you any more because it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? right? And, and so you have that 800,000 or whatever of debt equity or you know, 900,000 of debt equity. And, and, and then what do you do? Well, you, you're not earning a return on that. It's sitting there and you can't eat equity. You can't generate a return from it. You're right. only getting the cash flow and the mortgage pay down. That's the way I calculate a return on equity. I don't look at the appreciation just on the cash flow and mortgage pay down. And you get a percentage number every year. And if you can't get you know up to the high single digits or into the double digits, that, that, um, that return on equity could be like 0.2% or, you know, point, like not even a percent. And, and if you can t- recapture that equity and then put it to work for you, all of a sudden you're, you know, your net worth grows, but also your cash flow grows because you're taking that debt equity and putting it into something else that's more efficient. And if you're in the US, it's almost like a no brainer, <laughs> like, right. because, because your tax code allows you to do it so much easily, more easily. I would have to pay uh, 50% of the gain, half of the gain as income. So like on a million dollars, I would be spend uh, like I'd be, you know, uh, getting 200, uh, $250,000 tax bill. Right. And, right. and so, um, Whereas with you, you could offset that with cost segregation. You know, there, there would be other ways that you could do that when you go to invest instead of just using a 1031 exchange. So you'd like, and you still have the, like you've got multiple options to be able to do that. So it's like, it's almost like a no brainer. And I think that sometimes, especially when you get 
you know, you've done it for a while, you kind of put that to the back of your head and, you know, like you just let it kind of run, but eventually, and you should do it every year. You should do a return on equity calculation on your portfolio, see what's lagging and then figure out how to, to reposition that. Maybe you need to sell it. Right. Right. you know, and then take those, take that non-productive equity and make it more productive again for you. I love it. It's a very powerful lens to look at your portfolio through return on equity. And it's a, it's a problem, but it's a good problem to have because some people have built substantial net worth and that's a, that's an accomplishment. That's a milestone, but then they've got completely terrible return on equity, which is a, a new good problem to, to solve, but um, don't stop there, right? Don't just stop on, okay, I've got built up some net worth here. Look at that return on equity. Um, how did you find the transition going to these larger projects for, for you? Had you been in real estate enough that it kind of made sense or was that a, was it a hurdle for you? Did you spend a lot of time studying first or just taking more action? How did you approach that? Well, I started with a small, like a six unit and then, oh, great. Yep. yeah. So in 2015, it was a six unit and then I got into a seven unit then an 11 unit and 12 unit then 20 and then 30 and 40. And so I just kind of scaled up with, between that. I also right. had a conversation with another real estate investor who is investing in apartment buildings. And he made me twist the concept that I had been thinking because the one to four unit properties are great for cash flow. Like right. they're, they're great cash flowing uh, assets. I mean, I have like some like triplexes that cash flow $3,000 a month. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. But, but as a percentage, it, it's incredible, a, right? Yeah, as a percentage, but right. it's it's the like he made me think. Okay, that's great for the cash flow, but like the apartment buildings are like big piggy banks, and you know you refinance them again and again, and that's when you take money out of your piggy bank, right? And you know, and the those apartment buildings are true wealth generators. They will generate wealth faster for you um, just because the size and scope of the projects that you're doing. And, you know, whereas, um, you know, when I do an apartment building, I, I own 50% of it. Like I, when I, like I'm not doing any of my projects, I, I, if I'm the one who's the the GP, I own 50% of that. And my investors are putting the other 50%. I'm doing all the work to get that, um, that project done, reposition it. I know in the U S we see more like 25 or 30, sometimes even 90, 10, depending on the experience of the the GP. I've been doing this so long in my area. Like if, if you don't like it, we'll go find somebody else. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it's a tremendous I, amount of work and expertise that goes into it. Yeah, and you know, developing all of that. So, yeah, sorry, I can I can just keep going. You, <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah, no, I lo- I love it. So let's you let's talk about the investor side. When did you start bringing on investor capital uh, in in your whole journey here? Uh, back 2009, actually, on the um, the projects that I was doing, because what I would do is I would I just send out an email to a couple people, letting them know this is what I'm doing, this is what I did this month, you know, and talk about the real estate that I was doing. Well, eventually, um, actually, it was one of my 
my bosses when I was a teenager wanted to get involved and he right. started to give me money to, and he would be the money partner on the projects, you know, and like he did extremely well with me. Like he's, he's put in hundreds of thousands, probably over a million in, in the different projects that we've sure. done together uh, or maybe even more than that. But like, he's done so, so well with them over the years, he's continued to, and, and it's building that track record with him. And then other people, you know, started to come along and, and then other people. And, and so as we refinance properties, they would come into the next project and then a few other people would come with them. So it kind of snowballed over time. So started back in 2009 and then last year, you know, there was quite a few projects that I got involved in. And so more people and more people uh, became involved in those projects. It's just, um, you know, it's just a process. I like talking about real estate. I, sure. you know, I connect with people like, you know, I, I might be on a podcast and a Canadian might hear it and they like, Oh, let's reach out to Quinton and see what he's doing and see how we can get involved. Like things like that. Right. And, and that's how I, I I've done it over the years. It's been a lot easier to connect with people through podcasts and video and things like that than ever before. Sure. But at the beginning I would just send out emails. <laughs> right. Right. You're right. Like, list of people, you know, BCC everybody. And, you know, and then I got it, then I started to use um, MailChimp and then active campaign and, you know, you get more sophisticated over time, but you just, all you're doing is telling people what you're doing. And, you know, as people know, like, and trust you over time, they'll want to invest with you. And, and that's what I found, you know, it started out with uh, friends and people acquaintances. And then as you know, other people heard what I'm, I was doing. You know, I, I was working with accredited investors. Sure. Um, and now that's who I work with. I just work with accredited investors. Hey, I yeah. love the story. And it's so, it's so uh, similar to mine and many others. You know, I remember the first, I, I started out using hard money loans to do houses. And I built up a track record of, you know, 10 houses or whatever. And then somebody saw me at, a, at an event and said, well, I, I'd loan you the money for that a couple of little bit cheaper. And I, that was the big aha for me is, okay, well, he's loaning me the money a little bit cheaper. And I went on to do millions of dollars of, of house deals with this guy, just, you know, one deal at a time. And then that led to syndications and it's kind of scaled up since, but uh, that's how it goes. Again, kind of a testament to the business model here, starting small and with friends and family. And I, I don't know when you worked for that guy, when you were a teenager, did you imagine you know, you'd be doing all this business later on. I mean, it, you know, no. take, take care of your friends in your circle. You never know what you're going to be doing later. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, he was the only entrepreneur that I knew, right? Like right. I, I did, I didn't, I worked for him, but like, you know, all my friends were working at like, you know, um, restaurants, chain restaurants, things like sure. that. I, I was, sure. you know, working in this import export company that this and you know truly taught me a lot about business and you know I, he's still my mentor today oh right? that's excellent yeah, yeah it's just very cool that's excellent what do you say quentin to that person that is um wanting to to start down your the path that you've gone down uh obviously it doesn't happen overnight but somebody that's wanting to expand their net worth they know they should be doing real estate um what what's a good on-ramp for them or a good next step for them 
Right. So I'm not special. Like I'm like, I'm like everybody else. Uh, Like I'm not different. Uh, You know, I think that if you can find other people who are doing what you're going to do, it'll get you moving in the right direction. So there's a lot of meetups and clubs and things like that, that can help you moving. And then as you gain momentum, then you're going to move out of that into different groups. Maybe you're going to start to associate with, you know, on the golf course with higher net worth individuals. Again, that's going to put you into like a different type of mindset and put you into a different type of group. Maybe you'll start getting involved into larger syndications and and things like that, general partnerships. So, but if you're just getting starting, just go and talk to people who are like just in the trenches doing it. And there's so many groups right now. Like when I started, like there was nothing, right? Like, you know, there was national, like, education organizations that were basically big sales pitches to big, you know, programs and things like that. But now there are so many other places that you can get information from. It's just starting and, but associate with people who are doing it. That is the key because there's so many fraudsters and just like, just garbage out there. Find selling seminars, right? Seminar sales business. That's right. So yeah. find people who are actually doing it and buy them lunch, like take them out, like help them figure out how you can help them. Ask them, how can I help you? Right. And see what it is that you can do to help them in their business. They'll be willing to help you. Right. And and, and that's the key, but make sure you come with a plan. Don't waste. I, I've had people do that. And it's like, well, I don't know how to help you. Well, then you're like, it's going to take my time away. Come away with, come with a plan. Right. And that's another way of doing it as well. So hope that helps. <laughs> it, no, it absolutely does. It, and thank you for, for sharing your experience on that. Um, Quentin, this has been great. I, I love the, I, I love your story. I love that you started out as a teacher and now are looking at a hundred million dollar portfolio, you know, this year or this quarter, it's tremendous. Um, if somebody wants to connect with you, that's listening, what's the best way for them to do that? I've got a podcast, uh, getrealwealthy.com. So you can go in. I, you know, I like to, to, to share, you can catch me on, on Twitter, on Instagram at QmanREI. I'd like to, you know, uh, connect with you on, on social media. Um, and then I've got that, uh, a link tree link that I'll, I'll give to you that you can have people click on. And, you know, my books are on Amazon. I've got books on, um, you know, uh, one is the action takers, real estate investing planner. That's just great for anybody just starting out or who's been investing for a while. That's looking to have a, you know, a way to have, um, planning from like 10 year planning down to quarterly planning down to weekly planning and, and just use the strategies that I've used to be able to grow my portfolio. So that's a great book to pick up as well. Excellent. Well, we'll link to the link tree link in the show notes. So if you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, whatever the case is in the show notes, there'll be a, uh, a link to click right through, and then you can access all of Quentin's links there. Um, Awesome. Quentin, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you sharing your story and it's inspiring. So I, I, I know some people today listening that haven't met you before or inspired by this. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Devin. Anytime. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com. 